Hey everybody, this is Tony, your host of a Stranger Things podcast. Um, I'm doing something a little bit different um, before we actually get back to the uh, season one and season two uh, episodes of uh, Stranger Things. What I'm going to do is uh, read a, uh, a book that I've, uh, I've read. It's called Stranger Things in the 1980s, the complete uh, retro guide uh, uh, written and authored by uh, Joseph Vogel. This is a little bit of a uh, departure from what I've uh, normally done uh, or topics that I've you know covered. But since this uh, book actually covers <laughs> Stranger Things, <laughs> said topic for the show, um, I thought it was really uh, interesting that I just jump right into this and start reading it. Um, I'm just sitting here and I just decided this one day, you know what, I'm going to read this entire book in audiobook form and didn't realize how uh, difficult <laughs> this actually is, uh, reading hours and hours of a, uh, of a book uh, out loud. Because usually, you know, normally when I'm reading a book, you know, it's in my head or I'm listening to it and I'm reading along with it. That's something I do. It's kind of weird. But, uh, you know, I wanted to, to do this to shed some uh, new information, some new light. And I've, I, I have several uh, Stranger Things uh, books that I'm reading, whether it's furthering the storylines within the show uh, through uh, books, whether it's whether it's covering uh, Chief uh, Hopper or uh, uh, Max, her time before coming to the um, to the uh, Stranger Things uh, world uh, with her brother Billy and just all of the surrounding stories. I've read a lot of those books. I have some of the uh, graf- uh, graphic novels, which I absolutely love. Um, it reminds me of the uh, Stranger Things uh, graphic novel. So you have any chance uh, to pick those up definitely pick them up you can find them on uh on the hugest uh, online retailer we know uh who that is so anyway i'm not gonna uh, plug them here but um with, with all that being said i'm just sitting here just uh reading and um and i just hope you enjoy this and all its imperfections because that's exactly what it is because reading out loud someone else's uh words um and it's it's harder than you would think um you know i've always said you know if i'm writing something myself you know myself and i'm reading it it's uh it's easier because you know your your mindset you know your your ideas that you're trying to convey out to you know whatever audience you you have whatever uh, uh whatever you're doing at the time so you know this is a um this is just something I just wanted to do. I'm just sitting here just drinking a cup of coffee or, or a tea, depending on which chapter I'm in <laughs> at the time. But uh, yeah, so this is going to be imperfect. It's not going to be, you know, um, the best reading that you've ever uh, uh, heard aloud. So with all of that being said, uh, that's full disclosure for what's to <laughs> what's what's to come. But, um, you know, because I'm used to reading to my to my kids or, you know, or like I said, I normally don't read aloud. I'm usually listening to a, a, a uh, audio book or I'm uh, if I'm listening to the audio book, I'm reading, you know, in my, you know, in my mind's eyes, they say. But it's a little bit different when you're reading to an audience and people are listening to every word that you're saying. Anyway, I'm not making any excuses here. You know, it's kind of like what this is sound like, right? 
But, you know, with all that being said and all that out of the way, you know, this is a reading, a complete reading of Stranger Things and the 1980s, the complete retrograde, like I said. And I, I just really enjoyed this book and all the uh, inside information that I got while uh, while reading it. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy this uh, full reading of the full book. And then we will right after um, I finish reading this book. I'm going to jump right into the uh, episodes of season one and two of uh, Stranger Things. I know they've probably been covered those seasons, but I really want to get in back into them. Um, I'm going to have a couple of guests come and go um, as I go through the um, go through the uh, seasons uh, one and two, and then hopefully by then. Um, I know we we are going to have a new season of Stranger Things by April of, I think, around April of 2022. As of the time of these recordings, we are uh, late October going um, going into... November. So I will be releasing a one episode, uh, starting with the introduction, uh, which is what this is, um, every week uh, up until the beginning of uh, 2022, and then go right into uh, seasons one and two, covering those, and then possibly, possibly go back to uh, season three and see if we can revisit those episodes and not necessarily you know go beat by beat but just um just maybe see if we can find out and find some new information you know about those episodes or just you know like i said just revisit them you know see if we can uh find some some new gems within those uh episodes in particular and hopefully by then we will have a new season of Stranger Things to to cover because it's been such a long time. It's what almost two years now since we've had a season of Stranger Things. It's been absolutely crazy. But uh, anyway, with all that being said, we're gonna jump right into the reading of this book. Here we go. It'll give it a show. Oh hey, morning, Flo. Morning, everybody. Hey, T. Damn. You look like hell, Chief. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I look better than your wife when I left her this morning. <laughs> <laughs> While you were drinking or sleeping or whatever it is you deem so necessary on Monday morning, Phil Larson called, said some kids are stealing the gnomes out of his garden again. Oh, those garden gnomes again. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll make it right on that. On a more pressing matter, Joyce Byers can't find her son this morning. Mm, okay, I'm going to now. Joyce, Joyce is very upset. Uh, Flo, she, she... Flo, we've discussed this. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Chief, she's coffee your... and contemplation. Flo. Stranger Things in the 1980s. The Complete Retro Guide. Written by Joseph Vogel. Joseph Vogel is the author of several books, including Man in the Music, the creative life and work of Michael Jackson, and this thing called life, prince, race, sex, religion, and music. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, Slate, The Guardian, Forbes, and The Huffington Post. He is an assistant professor at Merrimack College in Massachusetts.
Introduction As a child of the 1980s, Stranger Things hooked me from the opening title sequence, the eerie, glowing red letters that resemble the font on an old Stephen King novel, the moody synth theme, the VHS-like flickering of the black screen. It all hit the right notes. It was almost like we had somehow overlooked it on some outlaying movie store shelf back in 1983. But now, here it was, recovered and restored in all its analog era glory. As a TV series, Stranger Things can be classified as many things. Sci-fi, horror, coming of age, teen drama, comedy, action adventure. But it is perhaps above all a tribute to an era. As the show description puts it, a love letter to the 1980s. That's the focus of this book in your hands. It documents how thoroughly immersed the show is in the 1980s culture, from its soundtrack to its characters to its technology to its bikes. But I didn't just want a series of lists or trivia. There's already plenty of that online. Instead, my approach was to tell a story, or rather, uh, many stories, about the show's relationship with the decade in which it takes place and takes inspiration. So, for example, the book won't just tell you what video games are in the Palace Arcade in Season 2. It will explain how video games and arcades transformed youth culture in the 1980s and what role they play in the show. It won't just tell you which Spielberg movies influenced the Duffer Brothers the most. It will take you inside the scenes, characters, and concepts to draw from those films. If Stranger Things is a love letter to the 1980s, this book is your in-depth guide to the era it revives. A Cultural Phenomenon Stranger Things has only been around for a few years, yet in that short time it has generated a following as large and passionate as anything on television or any other screen, big or small for that matter. It is that rare crossover hit enjoyed by kids, teens, and parents alike. Its characters are now international celebrities. Its characters, social media sensations. See Justice for Bar. Hashtag. In both of the first two seasons, Stranger Things received Golden Globe nominations for Best Television Series. It also amassed 31 Emmy nominations, including for Outstanding Drama Series. While Netflix is notoriously reticent about uh, viewership numbers, Nielsen estimates that its season two premiere was watched by 15.8 million American viewers in its first week alone. Now, many of those viewers binge watched the entire season within days. Meanwhile, the uh, site Rotten Tomatoes gives both the first and second seasons a 94% positive rating from critics and 91% from viewers. It is now so pervasive in popular culture that its merchandise sells in stores next to long-established blockbuster franchises like Star Wars and Harry Potter. Yet before the summer of 2016, no one had even heard of Eleven or Chief Hopper or Steve Harrington, all now household names. The Upside Down, Hawkins Laboratory, and Demogorgons weren't even yet part of our cultural lexicon. Beyond Renona Wider, the show had no recognizable stars. 
It wasn't even promoted with a typical uh, media blitz. There were no billboards or commercials, just a few leaked details and intriguing trailer. Netflix was confident word would spread organically. They were right. Not long after it went live on Netflix on July 15, 2016, it became a sensation. It seemed like everyone you talked to, neighbors, friends, colleagues, family members, was watching it or wanted to. That month, the New York Times declared it the show of the summer. By season two, the show was Netflix's biggest hit watched in over 190 countries by hundreds of millions of viewers from the United States to China to Brazil. Meet the Duffer Brothers. But let's back up a bit. To understand how and why Stranger Things struck such a chord, it's helpful to know where it came from. Among the most remarkable facts about the show is the relative youth and inexperience of its creators. Matt and Ross Duffer, now more widely known by their professional dual designation, the Duffer Brothers. Twins from Dorm, North Carolina, the Duffer Brothers were barely 30 years old when they conceptualized Stranger Things. Their first big breakthrough in the industry came in 2011 
when Warner Brothers acquired the rights to their screenplay for Hidden, a little-known horror film that came out in 2015 and grossed a modest $350,000. They subsequently worked on the mystery Fox television series Wayward Pines, where they were mentored by director M. Night Shyamalan. It was around this time that they came up with the idea for Stranger Things in its early broad strokes, a period-based piece, a missing person story featuring some supernatural elements and government conspiracies. They wrote a rough version of the pilot episode along with a 20-page proposal, hopeful about its prospects. No one, however, was willing to take a chance on it. The Duffer Brothers estimate that their initial initial pitch was rejected by at least 20 people. The reasons varied. Some felt the show wouldn't work with kids in such prominent roles. Some suggested that the story be built around Chief Hopper instead. Most simply weren't convinced the Duffer Brothers' unproven commodities in an industry adverse to risk could deliver a successful series on their own. Then, in late 2014, the script came across Dan Cohen's desk, vice president of 21 Laps Entertainment. Just a year earlier, Cohen said he was looking for something unusual and compelling from an up-and-coming director. If I had one goal as a producer, he said, it's to be the guy who gives the next Chris Nolan his Batman. He accomplished that with the Duffer Brothers. Impressed with their vision for Stranger Things, which was then simply called Montauk, named after the Long Island town where Jaws was based, he passed the script along to director-producer and founder of 21 Laps Entertainment, Sean Levy. Levy was a fortuitous match for the Duffer Brothers, a Canadian filmmaker best known for the Night at the Museum franchise. Levy had also recently produced the critically acclaimed 2016 sci-fi movie, Arrival. He was immediately intrigued by the Montauk script. 21 Laps, however, rarely acquired material for television. They did movies. Yet after meeting the Duffer Brothers in person, Levy was convinced it was worth taking or making an exception. The Duffer Brothers knew what they wanted. The 1980s backdrop, the electronic soundtrack, the Stephen King meets Spielberg vibe, the memorable characters. Their passion and vision for the show was contagious. Before the meeting was over, recalls Levy, I knew I had to do what I could to shepherd it to the screen. It was this great diamond in the rough found by Dan. I fell in love with it completely, bought into the boys and felt, and felt like they were worth betting on. In early 2015, Levy and the Duffer Brothers fine-tuned the pitch, including putting together a mashup trailer of movies that captured the feel and tone of the show. They made their first pitch to streaming juggernaut Netflix. Having been in the industry for decades, Levy believed he understood why the Duffer Brothers script had been overlooked to this point. As he put it, In the movie business, unless you're a superhero, a franchise, or a fairy tale, it is almost impossible to get anything made at a studio. In the era of streaming, however, television was different. Not only was TV in the midst of a so-called platinum era of incredible content, 
i.e. Breaking Bad, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Game of Thrones, it was more open to fresh faces and ideas. Levy believed Netflix was the perfect match for Stranger Things. Young and agile enough to take a chance on something new, but established enough to put the necessary resources behind it. Netflix apparently felt the same. Within 24 hours of the pitch, they bought the series. As significantly, they agreed to give Levy and the Devil Brothers complete creative control. When we sold this, said Levy, it had no pre-awareness title, no big star actor or showrunner, just these young twin brothers with a crazy idea, vividly realized, and a movie director as the producer. They really empowered us and let us, let us lead the way. Generation Organ Trail For a show so immersed in the 1980s, some are really surprised to learn that the Duffer Brothers were actually too young to really remember most of the decade as it unfolded. Born in 1984, they were just six years old by the time the curtains were officially drawn on the Reagan era. Yet they have shown an uncanny ability to capture the zeitgeist, perhaps in part because the 1980s still remained so unubiquitous um, in pop culture. The Duffers have proven particularly adept at capturing the experience of kids growing up in that era, a generation raised on bikes, video games, and blockbuster movies. What is this generation called that came out, came of age in the 1980s? Did the generation we see represented in kids like Will and Mike, Dustin, and Lucas? Often, they are mistakenly conflated with Generation X. That designation, however, generally describes those born in the mid-1960s to mid-1970s, meaning by the 1980s, they were already in high school or college. Now, the term Generation X was coined by author Douglas Copeland, in his 1991 novel, Generation X, tells for an accelerated culture. Soon the term became shorthand for the disaffected, disillusioned children of baby boomers, a generation that experienced childhood after the momentous events of the 1960s. Generation Xers were a generation who experienced most of their childhood in the 1970s. They were the demographic MTV was aiming for when the network launched in 1981. Indeed, they are sometimes referred to as the MTV generation, which also became shorthand for an era of apathetic slackers weaned on pop culture. Such characterizations, of course, or are generalizations. But there is no question, as a whole, Generation X had a different outlook and sensibility than their parents. They were more skeptical, sometimes cynical, less inclined to change the world than to resist its expectations. Think of people like Quentin Tarantino, born 1963, Kurt Cobain, born 1967, Molly Ringwald, born 1968, and Renona Weiner, born 1971. And you get a good sense of various incarnations of Generation X. Or think of the older teenagers in Stranger Things. Steve, Nancy, Barb, Jonathan, and Billy. 
all would likely classify as Generation Xers. The generation that followed Generation X were children in the 1980s. As a whole, they tended to be less angsty. This made sense as the 1980s, in many ways, was a great decade to be a kid. America was no longer experiencing the same crisis of confidence Jimmy Carter infamously uh, described in the late 1970s. The national mood was more optimistic albeit, you know, with a range of underlying panics, crises, and fears. What made the 1980s great for kids, though, was the overall sense of freedom and possibility. It was the explosion of new music, TV shows, movies, and video games. It was all of the exciting new technologies, Macintosh computers, Sony Walkmans, Ataris, and Nintendos. It was no coincidence that most of these new technologies were geared towards kids. We were the first generation to grow up from our earliest years on home videos, video games, and portable music. Strangely, this generation, which has been so frequently represented in pop culture, has often neither been mischaracterized or simply gone unnamed. As journalists Anna Garvey writes, We're an enigma. Those of us born at the tail end of the 1970s and the start of the 1980s. Some of the generational experts lazily glob us into uh, Generation X, and others just shove us over to the millennials they love to hate. No one really gets, gets us or knows where we belong. We've been called Generation Xenios uh, and and the lucky ones, but no name has really stuck for this strange micro generation that has both a healthy generation of uh, Generation X grunge cynicism and a dash of unbridled optimism of millennials. As Remini Garvey proposes, we be called the organ trail generation after the educational computer game featured in most American classrooms in the 1980s. If you can strictly recall the excitement of walking into your weekly computer lab session and seeing a room full of Apple IIEs displaying the start screen of Oregon Trail, she writes, you remember of this nameless generation my friend, the Oregon Trail generation grew up on Spielberg, Michael Jackson, and Mario Brothers. We watched Saturday morning cartoons like He-Man and Transformers, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and DuckTales. 
We learned about books on Reading Rainbow. We grew up obsessed with franchises like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, and Ghostbusters. We rode bikes. The kids at Hawkins Middle School, including Will, Mike, Lucas, Dustin, Eleven, and Max are, no doubt, part of this generation. So am I, which is one of the reasons the show resonates. And even though they are on the younger outskirts, having been born in 1984, so too are the Dover Brothers. The 1980s 2.0 There is a reason why a kid who grew up in California and a kid who grew up in Indiana or North Carolina or Colorado have similar memories of the 1980s. It is because whatever the distinct regional and familial details of our lives, our memories are saturated with shared touchstones from popular culture. As an author and journalist, David Sarota explains the 1980s for us was not so much a historical moment as a language. I don't remember the 1980s, he writes, as much as I speak it and think in it. Sharota writes about how he and his brothers, in spite of all the differences, patched together a common dialect of 80s references that served as diplomatic Morse code, bridging conflict, forging compromise, and filling uncomfortable silence. What was this Morse code? In our household, Sharota explains, you could garner forgiveness with a proper mimic of planes, trains, and automobiles. Sorry, whispered, like a pajama-clad Dell Griffith. Demand someone do something by quoting Indiana Jones. Do it now, with a clenched fist. Describe the weather in the Empire Strikes Back terms. It's like, hop out there. And tell anyone to do something just about anything with the generic mantra of Rocky III. Go for it, mumbled with the Italian stallion's guttural inflection. We see this secret language all over Stranger Things. The kids make all kinds of pop culture references and allusions from Halloween to Star Wars to Ghostbusters. These aren't just clever, ironic references. This is the way kids talked in the 1980s. Moreover, we see constant visual references that recall our favorite movies from that decade. We hear the music we had in our cassette tape players and collections. We recognize storylines from Stephen King novels and their film adaptations. More than any filmmakers since those operating in the actual decade, the Duffer Brothers cracked the code of the 1980s. How did they do it? In part, it was simply a natural extension of their interests and inspirations. Once they decided to set the show in the Reagan era, they explained, it allowed them to pay homage to all things that inspired us most. Maybe we could catch a little bit of the feeling of Stephen King's books and the Spielberg movies. We allowed all these influences to converge into, into the idea for the show. Yet their encyclopedic knowledge of the decade was never intended to feel gimmicky or obvious. It wasn't intended to be an endless litany of 1980s Easter eggs, explains Matt Duffer. Sometimes I see people write about Stranger Things and they say they like the show because it was self-aware. And I guess I really didn't want it to be self-aware. We never wanted it to be ironic. 
we didn't want to wink at the audience, right? So we wanted to play it like one of those movies uh, would have back then, you know, that, that sort of goal. So the hope was the references or whatever, if that's, you know, that what they were, people would pull out of it. The way we tried to get away from with that was being truthful to what the characters would do in their situations and make sure it all just made sense. The references and homages, that is, are about authenticity, not just to the period, but to the filmmakers, artists, and authors that first translated that period. In particular, Stranger Things is the offspring of the cinematic world of the 1980s. These are the movies that we grew up on, explained Matt Duffer, and whether it's right or not, we prefer the way they look at it in in a way that changed a lot of the way we really, really try to display things on screen. And, you know, just the way it sounded at that time. We shot on a digital camera, then we added film grain, and we wanted to have a very sort of uh, uh, filmatic look. This kind of attention to detail was put into every element of the show, from the way the characters dressed and talked, to their hairstyles, bedrooms, bikes, cars, and walkie-talkies. But it was also about the the uh, presentation of the show, the way it was filmed, edited, and produced. We tested uh, quite heavily to make sure that our images had the soft and round tones that are in the 1980s films, explained uh, director of photography, Tim Ives. Our goal was to make this thing feel like something that you'd lost and then you hadn't seen in such a long time. You missed it in the 1980s, and you were going to watch it now, a found piece. That was the desire, and that was everyone's mantra, modern and nostalgic. The objective brings us back to the title sequence. The now iconic uh, introduction to Stranger Things was inspired in part by legendary motion graphics and titles designer Richard Greenberg. Greenberg designed a number of famous title sequences in the late 70s and 1980s, including those for Superman, Alien, Alter States, The Goonies, Dirty Dancing, and Die Hard. 
He was known as the Duffers Explained for using the lettering of the title movie titles to create uh, hypnotic combinations of movement and color and shadow. The Duffers were also inspired uh, on many from many of Stephen King's novels from this period. According to imagery forces, the design house hired to create the opening title. The brothers sent tracks of Stephen uh, King novels to convey their vision for what the title should look like. With this guidance, more modern designs were scrapped for the more retro-looking font, ITC uh, Begat, which was used on the cover of Stephen King's 1980 novel, Firestarter. It also uh, featured was featured on the Smith's 1987 Strange Ways, Here We Come. The retro font of the main title was curved slightly and changed from white to red. Then it was placed against a flickering black screen and put in motion so that the letters gradually came together like a puzzle. In contrast to the elaborate title sequences for shows like Game of Thrones or Westworld, it was simple. Yet a enormous amount of care went into creating subtle effects. For example, Codeth uh, transparencies of the title were created and backlit, similar to analog techniques used in the 1980s. While it was created on a computer, they tried to capture the textiles and imperfection of the 1980s movies. The grain and light uh, leaks and fuzzy edges. All of those details contributed to the psychological recognition or nostalgia many viewers experienced when watching the opening credits. And then there was the music. The Duffer Brothers knew they wanted an electronic soundtrack. As much as they loved Spielberg, they felt the show demanded something different uh, sonically, uh, something closer to the music of John Carpenter, um, Tangerine Dream, or Giorgio Marauder. To test out this impulse, they put together a mock trailer of the 1980s movies overlaid with John Carpenter music. As soon as we heard from John Carpenter's eerie synth drones play over shots from E.T., we got major goosebumps. It worked big time. For Stranger Things, the Duffer Brothers were looking for something similarly uh, moody and synthy. Something that would feel both modern and nostalgic at the same time. They found what they were looking for in Austin-based synth band Survive, comprised of two members, Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon. Survive was not well known outside the indie electronic scene prior to Stranger Things. They built a following through their use of analog synthesizers rather than more typical Pro Tools-based uh, electronic music. Consequently, their sound and feel harken back to the late 1970s and 80s when analog, analog synthesizers were in their prime. The Duffer Brothers learned of the group through their contributions to the 2014 horror thriller, The Guess. That film wasn't widely known, but its retro vibe spoke to the brothers. A demo by Survive called Prophecy ended up evolving into the title theme. The signature bass line was created on a Roland SH-2, a popular synthesizer that allows you to create rich harmonics. They filtered the sound to ebb and flow in volume, gradually building in intensity. 
They used the Prophet V, another popular synth in the late 1970s and 80s, for the bedding. This was the synthesizer used in many John Carpenter music and movies. Then they added details, the uh, sparkling at the very beginning, the heartbeat-like drumbeat, which adds a sense of foreboding and suspense, and the electronic buzzing sound effects. All of this was choreographed to sync with the title sequence. The final product was exactly what the Duffer Brothers wanted. Something dark, warm, uh, familiar, but mysterious. Its moody, uh, minimalist pulse perfectly captured the feel of the show. It is this attention to detail, to fonts, sounds, styles, and effects that makes Stranger Things special. It is what makes the show seem like it's just not set in the 80s, but from the 80s, as if the Duffers somehow captured the era in a bottle. A Curiosity Voyage The chapters that follow explore Stranger Things' relationship to the 1980s through 11 uh, different entry points. Stephen King, Spielberg, 80s movies, 80s music, childhood, the Reagan era, playing games, science and technology, food and fashion, the outsiders, and a hero's journey. While it is intended to be read from beginning to end, it is also a great way to jump around and to get a source for what's to come. For example, if you're itching to learn more about the Clash's 1982 song, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, head over to Chapter 4. If you want to understand how the show is connected to John Hughes' legendary films like The Breakfast Club, uh, Ferris Bueller, etc., turn to Chapter 3. Now, if you want to know the significance of uh, Ego Waffles, turn to Chapter 9. And if you want to know which Stephen King novel was most influential to the Duffer Brothers, well, you're almost there. Turn to chapter one. I settled on the number of chapters 11 in honor of, yep, her, the iconic character performed by Millie Bobby Brown. Chapter 11 focuses primarily on her cultural significance as well as her hero's journey in the show. Be aware from the outset, spoilers abound throughout the book. It is intended to be read after watching the show. There is no doubt that part of Stranger Things' appeal has to do with nostalgia. Uh, people love to revisit the past and the 1980s for a variety of reasons, have proven particular, particularly captivating. In a 2018 article, Newsweek asked, Why do we love the 80s so much? Pointing not only to Stranger Things, Phenomenon, but also to movies like Ready Player One, albums like Taylor Swift's 1989, and a revival of 80s styles and fashions. Often Often overlooked is that this revival has been in large part driven by young people. That's what has made Stranger Things such a phenomenon. Many of the show's most ardent fans never lived through the 1980s. It is just as popular, if not more, among millennials and Gen Zers as it is for Gen Xers and Oregon Trailers. Young fans are fascinated by the history inside the story. 
They want to know more about The Clash, Stephen King, and Ghostbusters. They are enamored with the bikes, walkie-talkies, and latchkey freedom. That's what this book is about. All those period details, connections, references, and inspirations that make the show what it is. Dustin will call it a curiosity voyage. So whether you live through the 80s or not, this book is your DeLorean, and we're headed back to the Reagan era. Very few shows encourage that kind of journey more than Stranger Things.